Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to For Real, a bi-weekly nonfiction books podcast that puts the spotlight on books that tell it like it is, or at least try to. We'll cover new releases, backlist finds, and more. For Real is a Book Riot podcast and is hosted by me, Kim Ugara, and fellow rioter Alice Burton. We're recording this week's episode on Thursday, December 1st. Hello, Alice. How are you today? I am plodding along as usual. How are you <laughs> doing, Kim? I, too, am plodding along. Uh, I cannot believe it is December. Like, what? What? It's that, it's that weird thing where, like, you get days off more, you know, if you're not a retail worker. I'm so sorry to the retail workers of the world. We should not put you through this. But so then you just, like, I don't know, time gets weird around this time of year. And you suddenly feel like it just, like, went real quick. Yeah. And then, like, where we live, it's dark at, like, 4.30 in the afternoon. And so the whole evening just feels like, why am I not in bed yet? And then, you know, like... I try to go to bed early, but I don't always. And I don't know. Everything is just very slowing down, I guess. Well, I'm also in that end of year. Like, I'm reading mm. so much. Oh, interesting. Tell me about that. Well, like, okay. So for me, I think I usually read – this is completely not based on anything real, but let's say like six books a month. So mm-hmm. last month I read ten books, which wow. I was like, this is a lot of reading. <laughs> But uh, it's just I've been that's all I've wanted to do. And then I don't know if that's going to hold true for December, but Mm -hmm. I'm still feeling like that's what I want to do, like with my time. So yeah, we'll we'll see. I don't know. That's nice. I I keep going in these spurts where like I'll have days where I just read for many hours. But then on a day when I don't have many hours available, I can't seem to get myself to read anything at all. And so it's very like feast or famine is what it feels like. And I... I wish I could get into like a, I have 10 or 15 minutes, like I'll read a book instead of I have 10 or 15 minutes, like let's scroll on Instagram. I mean, 10 or 15 minutes. Yeah, that does seem like scroll on Instagram time. But then 10 or 15 minutes on Instagram turns into like a half hour, 45 minutes, like jumping between social media apps and then being like, what happened to the time? Oh, that's fair. Oh, I wanted to circle back on something that we were talking about right before hitting record for this podcast, which is I asked you if you had watched the HBO show Miracle Workers starring Daniel Radcliffe, and you said you had watched season one and stopped partway through season two. Is that right? Yes, that is correct. We watched season one and then like season two, it's got the same actors, but they're playing totally different characters. And we did not enjoy that as much. And so we stopped watching and have not come back to it. Right. Okay. So for those who don't know, Miracle Worker season one is like, God has decided, God is played by Steve Buscemi. He's decided to destroy the earth and the employees of heaven, Daniel Radcliffe is one of them, uh, are basically trying to like, they like make a bet with him to like, that they can bring two people together in like, to be in love and then they'll, he'll not destroy the earth. Mm-hmm. So, and then season two is just set in medieval Europe. <laughs> Yeah. And like, no one works for heaven. People just live in a medieval European town. It's a big shift. Season three, it looks like, is set in the Old West. So, oh. 
Yeah, I think my question, I've been asking people if they're watching this show because I'm almost done with season two because each episode's like 20 minutes and there are like Mm -hmm. eight episodes per season. Yeah. But I kept being like, are they going to suddenly reveal that they actually are in heaven or are, (laughs) do you know what I mean? (laughs) There's no explanation for the entire show changing or why it's still called Miracle Workers. Yeah. Despite being set in this small European town. I didn't know if you had any insight into that. I I don't. I have no idea. Yeah, like the first season is really funny and the premise is great. And like the people who are playing like heaven employees are like they have very limited things that they can do to influence life on earth. And so they're answering people's prayers. But like it's like a workplace show kind of and it's very funny. And yeah, we just didn't get into the like premise switch, I guess. It just it wasn't quite as fun, I thought. I do understand that. I will say that I have laughed very hard in season two, and I think it gets better <laughs> as you go in it. But, you know, there's so much TV out there. So why why make yourself watch something? I do think maybe like going straight from the first season to like the second season with such an abrupt twist or like change did a disservice to it, right? I think if we had come at it, like that was the first part of like not so close together, maybe we wouldn't have like, compared it as much and then had that reaction. I don't know. That does make sense. Okay. Um, real quick, I want to completely pivot, as is our want on this show, and talk about uh, TBR for the holidays. And TBR is, if you have never listened to For Real before, Tailored Book Recommendations, which is a service that uh, Book Riot does where we have bibliologists who are professional book nerds, and you basically tell them what you or someone you want to gift books to likes to read, their interests, like what they don't like, etc. And then the bibliologist will pick books for you or them. And it's a service where you can either just have them send you titles by email, and then you can go get those books, or they will mail you the books. It's really, really cool. So if you would like to give someone the gift of tailored book recommendations for the holidays, uh, go to mytbr.co slash gift to give the gift of books. That is mytbr.co slash gift. I will say I did give this to my mom for Christmas uh, last year, and she really liked it. She got some really good recommendations for authors she hadn't heard of. She got some, and like with every recommendation, like some were really good and some didn't quite hit what she wanted, but they were all new authors that she had never heard of. And uh, she really enjoyed it. And so she uh, got the recommendations and then checked them out from her library. So a great gift for, for moms. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. All right. With that, we will hear from our first sponsor. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right. So our first segment is uh, nonfiction in the news. So kind of some of the big things going on in the world of nonfiction. Uh, now that we're in December, we're at like end of the year book list season. Like they're coming out all over the place. They actually started coming out in like November, which I don't really understand because like it's not the end of the year yet. But 
The two that I always get really interested in are the New York Times Best Books of the Year and the Washington Post Best Books of the Year. Um, they each do a set of 10 books, five fiction, five nonfiction. And I always think it's really fascinating to compare and see what like repeats there are or if there are themes of one list that don't show up on the other list. So um, we'll link to both of them, and I'm just going to read the titles for each, and uh, then we can kind of talk about them. So for the New York Times, their five uh, best nonfiction books are An Immense World, How Animal Senses Reveal the Hidden Realms Around Us by Ed Young, Stay True, a Memoir by Huo Husa, uh, Strangers to Ourselves, Unsettled Minds and the Stories That Make Us by Rachel Aviv, Under the Skin, The Hidden Toll of Racism in, on American Lives and on the Health of Our Nation by Linda Villarosa, We Don't Know Ourselves by Fintan O'Toole. And then the Washington Post list is Constructing a Nervous System by Margot Jefferson, G-Man, J. Edgar Hoover on the Making of the American Century by Beverly, Beverly Gage, The Petroleum Papers, Inside the Far-Right Conspiracy to Cover Up Climate Change by Jeff Dimbecki, Stay True by Hua Husu, and Weapons of Mass Delusion When the Republican Party Lost His Mind by Robert Draper. So there's only one book that repeats across those lists, and that's the memoir, Stay True. Uh, and the rest are all different, which I think is fascinating. I don't know if you have any thoughts about that. Um, I, I think personally, they all sound, well, not all. I think like 80% of them sound kind of boring. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, maybe that is important for best of lists from respected journalist thing. I don't know. Um, there are a couple that I definitely want to add to my list. But overall, it's it's I think very, it's very serious. Yeah, very serious. That's the word I was looking for. It's not a hard word. Um, there is a very serious list. And I think that there's definitely times when one should read serious nonfiction. And we're here for some of those times. <laughs> I will say the Ed Young book I'm excited to see on this list. Oh, yeah. I listened to some of that on audiobook before I had to return it to the library because I ran out of time. And that one is really, really interesting. He looks at, like, how animals engage with the world and how it's different than how people do. And, like, that was really a neat book. So I, that one's kind of – that one, I think, maybe is the most most fun one on the two lists, I would think. No, that makes sense. That – <laughs> That's definitely the the lighthearted winner over there. Yeah. yeah, the other thing that we wanted to cover for nonfiction in the news is the National Book Awards nonfiction finalists were announced, but also the winner. So the nonfiction finalists were The Man Who Could Move Clouds, a memoir by Ingrid Rojas Contreras, The Invisible Kingdom, Reimagining Chronic Illness by Megan O'Rourke, Breathless, The Scientific Race to Defeat a Deadly Virus by David Quammen. His name is George Floyd, One Man's Life and the Struggle for Racial Justice by Robert Samuels and Toulouse Olorunipa. South to America, A Journey Below the Mason-Dixon to Understand the Soul of a Nation by Imani Perry. And the award for nonfiction went to South to America, A Journey Below the Mason-Dixon to Understand the Soul of a Nation by Imani Perry. I know that we always talk about covers. It's got a great cover. It does. It <laughs> and does. is just, um, I've only heard extremely positive things about this book. So I am unsurprised that it won. Yeah. I wouldn't say that that list sounds more fun, but it definitely has more, I think, readable 
yeah titles mm. on it, right? Like more books that would be like memoirs or maybe like journalistic investigations rather than like big history books or something like that. Just kind of off the what I know vaguely about many of those titles. Um, no, I totally agree. I, I think that it it's much more uh, the kind of list that people would want to read all of them on there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, maybe that's a good like point out of the difference is that the New York Times and Washington Post ones don't don't those don't necessarily feel like general interest nonfiction that like anybody might want to pick up, but these feel a little bit more more general, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, we'll link to um, some articles that have all of those lists. You can kind of explore them yourselves, but um, lots of end of the year lists that are kind of fun to look at. So for this week's episode, because it is our last regular episode of the year before we do our own best of or favorites of the year list, we wanted to sort of do a last new books push. So we're going to cover some new books from November and December that we didn't get to because of the gift guide last week um, or that are coming out in the next month, just kind of doing all of them in one episode. So it is a full episode of new books, which I think is very exciting because there's a lot of really good ones that come out at the end of the year that I think get buried a little bit under like the looks ahead to 2023 or the looks back on best of the other books. So it's a tough, it's a tough, tough period of time, I would say, <laughs> for your new book to come out. So my first pick is called Fatty, Fatty, Boom, Boom, a memoir of food, fat, and family by Rabia Chowdhury, uh, which came out November 8th. Um, and honestly, like this one first caught my attention because I think the cover is really stunning. It is bright yellow with these really big colorful letters on it. Like, I just think it is really a beautiful cover, um, but the book sounds super interesting too. So Robbie Chowdhury is writing about how she was kind of an overweight person for much of her life. So when, according to like her family stories, when they first um, went from the United States and went back to Pakistan to visit, she was, quote, more than just a pudgy toddler. The family story is that he, like she couldn't be picked up by her grandmother and the there was this, this whole thing about how overweight she was. And so she um, writes about her her experience being an overweight person and a person who loves food, but also like loves food a ton and sort of loves food too much to hold a grudge against it. So she um, writes about coming to love the Pakistani foods of her heritage, about learning to cook, to eat uh, wholesome foods and wholesome ingredients, and then um, shares some of the recipes of her Pakistani food and culture that she loves. So it is a a memoir and also uh, a book about a love of food, which I think those are both things that I really love. And so it's a book also about body image and how – just a lot of things about that, which I think is also really timely um, right now. So uh, I haven't gotten to read this one, but I think it looks really interesting. Um, Fatty, Fatty, Boom, Boom, A Memoir of Food, Fat, and Family by Rabia Chaudhry. Oh, that does sound really good. Yeah. Yeah, there's just, oh, there's so many so many new books coming out. I and know. some of them, like, I'm like, why was that not on my radar? Because it sounds like something mm-hmm. I would love. And so I'm so glad that you are also picking books for this section. <laughs> um, okay, my first pick for this is Disability Pride Dispatches from a Post-ADA World by Ben Matlin. So Ben Matlin, uh, about 10 years ago, he had a memoir come out called Miracle Boy Grows Up, How the Disability Rights Revolution Saved My Sanity. Um, he was born with spinal muscular atrophy and was one of the first students in a wheelchair to attend Harvard. So he his memoir was more about how he grew up with 
the disability rights movement. And so ADA, the Americans with Disabilities Act, happened in 1990. So if you'll remember, we recently celebrated the 30th anniversary. And in this book, it's it's, we've talked about the book Disability Visibility before, which is much more essays from different people with disabilities, you know, talking about like their, uh, their lives. And here instead, it's more he interviews people, he reports on how the generation that came of age after the Americans with Disabilities Act came out and how that reshaped America. Um, he talks about how autistic self-advocacy in the neurodiversity movement upended views, right? Like the the word neurodivergent even that's so relatively new in terms of common parlance, like that I definitely don't remember hearing that until like recent years. And this is because of people working in this post-ADA world and trying to, you know, like get these terms out there and make them understood. Um, he also talks about some of the shortcomings of the movement, like the erasure of non-white and uh, LGBTQIA people um, that helped give rise to disability justice. And it's just like a very, I feel like all-encompassing, it's like a survey, uh, but also with these interviews of what has happened since 1990 when we had the ADA. So very psyched about it. Um, again, that is Disability Pride Dispatches from a Post-ADA World by Ben Matlin. I think that sounds super interesting, like just sort of in the like larger context of the ADA and like not being around. I, I'm older than the ADA, but it's I'm not I'm 36. Right. So like I don't remember like a pre-ADA world, but like that there was. But then also that the ADA like compliance with the ADA doesn't necessarily mean that you're equitable and accessible. And so I think it's really interesting the way that people are talking about that now and kind of shifting away from just like compliance towards actual equity through this disability justice like movement. And so I think that is a really cool and timely um, book to have included. Yeah. Oh, that was a good, that was a good addendum. Thank you for that, Kim. Thank you. Thank you. Um, all right. So my next pick is uh, some true crime because got to have some of that. Uh, it's called The Forever Witness, How DNA and Genealogy Solved a Cold Case Double Murder by Edward Humes. Uh, and so this is a book about how a detective and a genealogist teamed up to solve a cold case. So the cold case in question uh, was a murder, a double murder in 1987. Um, there was a couple who were on a trip to Seattle and then they vanished. Uh, a week later, their bodies were found in rural Washington state, but there were no clues, no witnesses, and a manhunt didn't reveal anything. And so the case uh, eventually went cold and was left alone. And so um, eventually a guy named uh, Detective Jim Scharf uh, comes across the cold case and starts looking into it trying to see if there's something that maybe the original detectives missed. At the same time, a young woman who um, named Cece Moore, who is um, fascinated with the idea of genetic genealogy, starts to kind of explore this hobby of hers. And so um, eventually, Scharf decides that he's going to send the DNA that was uh, saved from this cold case to a lab, thinking that maybe the genetic material might um, connect something with this genealogy research and genealogy databases. And so um, he so he does that and they are able to make a connection and then they're able to um, really move forward with this case. Uh, and so it is about that case, but it is also about um, what genetic genealogy is, how it is being um, 
explored in different arenas how it works and then like the bigger question of like should we <laughs> should we be doing that how do we use DNA to catch murderers and what is the ethics of connecting DNA to these genealogy databases and some of those other things so a lot of like very timely questions I think that um, like genealogy and DNA have been coming up more and more in um, crime situations and um, so I think it's timely to maybe be exploring this in this context so the forever witness how DNA and genealogy solved a cold case double murder by Edward Humes um, I'm glad that it addresses the sort of privacy concern mm-hmm. about because mm-hmm. I know that you know there was stuff like the Golden State Killer and being yeah. caught through these databases. So you hear like there's a lot of positives as a result of it, but I know people are are very concerned and saying, well, don't submit your DNA to things like yeah. you know 23andMe because there's a possibility that it could be basically you're you're losing your privacy um, mm-hmm. for something that is the most unique part about you (laughs) yeah it's very like seems kind of harmless and then like once you start seeing the uses there's lots of questions i think about is it really harmless yeah so i mean if it if it's also covering that i think that's that's Mm -hmm. great as opposed to just like hooray technology (laughs) um okay uh once again very much pivoting. Let's talk about Queen of Snails. So this is a graphic memoir by Maureen Burdock. It is done in colored pencil, which is really cool. I'm always so impressed with anyone who can make art. And then I just think about like what I drew with colored pencils in <laughs> middle school. <laughs> I look at the art here and I'm like, oh gosh, <laughs> this is a wide difference. Okay. Um, this is uh, a, a fairly serious um, graphic memoir, so just be aware it deals with intergenerational trauma. Burdock is raised by her mother, who is very religious um, in the Christian sense. And then they, uh, when she is young, they move to Chicago from Germany and moved to in with her grandmother, who was a former Nazi youth leader. And is still nostalgic about the Nazi party. So that's going on. And um, because of uh, her grandmother sort of like being displaced during World War II due to her affiliation with the Nazis, Burdock's mother lived in an orphanage for part of the time. So it's basically this is the sort of intergenerational trauma bit, right? Like she feels neglected by the caretaking people in, like in her life, and then they were also neglected or made very bad life decisions. And there, and then like the theme, the reason that it is called Queen of Snails <laughs> is um, when she was growing up, she would go into the forest in Germany and really uh, felt connected to nature, and in particular, um, snails. And she, they sort of are this metaphor, I believe Publishers Weekly calls it like a, a metaphor for home and vulnerability. And I feel like that's kind of perfect, right? Because, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, everyone knows I don't need to, I guess, elucidate the whole thing of snails carrying their homes. Um, but anyway, there's soft, squishy bodies. It is, it's a very beautiful story. It is a little hard. So if you have family stuff, you know, just be aware. But uh, that is Queen of Snails, a graphic memoir by Maureen Burdock. Well, that sounds very good. Yeah, I always love memoirs that are like written and illustrated by the same person because I just feel so impressed. Yeah, so many skills. Like so many skills. In addition to like this like very 
lovely, challenging stories and experiences and just very cool. I also have a memoir to mention. Uh, So it is called A Coastline is an Immeasurable Thing, A Memoir Across Three Continents by Mary Alice Daniel. Uh, And so this is a coming-of-age memoir by a young woman who um, was born in uh, Nigeria and moves to England when she is a young girl and then spends much of the rest of her life traveling in different places and having writing about that experience of being a person who feels like they're not really from anywhere, but also very connected to different places that she has lived. And so um, she lives in uh, England for a while. They also live in California. So she writes about um, kind of what it was like in those different places. She looks at the tribal stories and mythologies that um, shaped her family and shaped her her media family and her extended family. So one of the interesting things that I haven't really read anything about that I think is a cool part of this book or sounds like a cool part of this book is that she writes about the different um, tribes in Nigeria and how they have the different like claims or connections she has to various tribes and how complicated that can be. So um, the Nigerian government recognizes her as a tribe, the Lunguda, um, which is her father's tribe. But then according to matrilineal traditions, she should actually be part of her mother's tribe, which is the pneumatic Fulani tribe. And then she also grew up speaking the language of a different tribe, the Hausa tribe. And so she like has connections to all of these things and she writes about that. But then she also kind of shares how she feels most connected actually to California, where she is the place where she ends up over time. So um, it's like a coming of age story about kind of these travels and these connections to places across the world, the different like legacies and stories that those places have and make her feel connected to. Um, I just think it sounds very um, encompassing of many different things. And I love, I love memoirs of people traveling different places or experiencing different things and how they bring those various pieces of their 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 travels and their culture and their experiences and their families kind of together into an identity that is very rich and complicated. So um, this one sounds very good. So A Coastline is an Immeasurable Thing, a memoir across three continents by Mary Alice Daniel. Oh my gosh, it's like different, different languages and cultures and, and mythologies and stuff. Oh, that's so cool. Oh my gosh. I'm just, oh, my family's so boring. Okay. <laughs> This is fine. I was like, where are you from? England, but also Scotland. (laughs) Anyway, okay. Uh, Let's talk about the Mexican witch lifestyle, Brujeria, Spells, Tarot, and Crystal Magic by Valeria Ruelas. Okay, so we've talked about witchcraft books on here before, and Mm -hmm. this one I am psyched about because I like saying Brujeria. (laughs) (laughs) Very fun. So in this, it talks about the culture of brujeria, or um, which is kind of this. Uh, so a okay, it it describes a modern Mexican bruja, or which usually translates to witch, as a powerful person, one who reads tarot and performs spell work and rituals of devotion to their spirit guides and deities. And brujeria can translate as witchcraft uh, from Spanish. It is a blend of spirituality with core elements of Afro-Indigenous beliefs. Ruelas, uh, the author, is a identifies as a gay Chicana Indigenous bruja and uh, is a tarot reader. He was born in Chihuahua, now lives in Albuquerque, uh, New Mexico. 
And here it talks about um, shopping at botanicas and yerberias, casting spells, interpreting tarot readings. And some. this is basically a handbook to all the aspects of brujeria, which includes, okay, how do you respectfully shop at a yerberia or botanica? Uh, how do you identify common crystals? Which is something I would love to know, because if I go into a new age store, I don't know what any of those things do. And this, I don't know, she just seems extremely... This is like, this is her life. And so she's going to actually know what these things are all about. There are essentials for your altar, uh, an introduction to tarot, spells to bring luck, love, and good fortune, the secrets of Santa Muerte. And it's just a guide if you're interested in learning more about this and like a, like an overview for how it works and how you can potentially incorporate even aspects of it into your life. So again, that is the Mexican Witch Lifestyle Brujeria Spells, Tarot, and Crystal Magic by Valeria Ruelas. Well, that also sounds extremely interesting. I I had not heard of that one at all. So excellent, uh, excellent addition. Whee! All right, with that, we will hear from our second sponsor. All right, so uh, my next pick is another science book, As Gods, A Moral History of the Genetic Age by Matthew Cobb. And so this is a history of genetic engineering. Matthew Cobb is a professor, uh, and he a bio- he's a biologist and a historian. And so he is writing about kind of the history of genetic experimentation and what the some of ethical and financial implications are. So he writes about how in the last 50 years, geneticists have like at four times called temporary halts to experiments because they're trying, they became sort of so alarmed at the implications of what they were experimenting and able to do. Um, And so he's writing about all of those different times because now we know enough about genetic engineering that we can do things like make pests extinct. We can change our own genes. We can create new versions of diseases. Like there's just a lot of stuff that we can do that is kind of scary. And so this book is uh, kind of a history and overview of what the landscape of uh, genetic engineering looks like and uh, like a consideration of um, kind of what we should maybe think about as this area of science moves forward. So that is As Gods, A Moral History of the Genetic Age by Matthew Cobb. Oh, that's really good. That also ties in with the book I am currently reading, which I will talk about at the end Ooh. of the show. But yeah, there's a lot of lot of questions coming up. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Or here already. Okay, let's talk about $20 and Change, Harriet Tubman and the Ongoing Fight for Racial Justice and Democracy by Clarence Lucene. So as we know, <laughs> America has some issues involving racism. Slash always has. I'm also do- in the middle of an audiobook about the impeachment of Andrew Johnson, and oh. it's just horrifying. But it, not the impeachment. He should have been gone. But anyway, he was not. He was impeached, but not kicked out of office. So with this book, Clarence Lusane is a political scientist. He previously wrote The Black History of the White House, and his premise is that racist historical narratives and pervasive social inequities are per- inextricably linked. So if you change one, you can transform the other. Uh, So when we're talking about racist historical narratives, in this case, he is posing it around the idea of Harriet Tubman or Andrew Jackson being on the $20 bill, Uh, which I think is a brilliant way to pose this. But, and you know, this is a thing where prior to the 
two presidential elections ago, there was a lot of talk about adding Harriet Tubman to the 20 instead of Andrew Jackson, who is a very controversial president. And then that kind of fizzled for reasons. And now, uh, you know, it's sort of still being debated. I believe there was talk recently about it moving forward. But in this, so he's using this as this lens through which to view the current state of our nation's reckoning with the legacies of slavery and foundational white supremacy and places the struggle to confront unjust social conditions in direct connection with the push to transform our public symbols, which again, like this $20 bill, this is just like, what do we stand for? Let's look at our money. (laughs) Um, Gosh, I just think about like, I'm not saying England or Canada is perfect, but at least they have like authors on their money. (laughs) It's kind of nice. Anyway, so uh, I I am absolutely fascinated by this book. It is $20 and Change, Harriet Tubman and the Ongoing Fight for Racial Justice and Democracy by Clarence Lusane. When you started to say the title again, the first thing I was like, we never say the prices of books. That's interesting. And then I realized that's the title. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, goodness. It is late and (laughs) my brain is uh, like a half step behind. (laughs) Listeners, it is not that late. Well, fair enough. (laughs) All right. So my next pick is uh, Elizabeth Taylor, The Grit and Glamour of an Icon by Kate Anderson Brower. So this is uh, the first ever authorized biography of Elizabeth Taylor, um, which caught my attention because I really like Kate Anderson Brower. She's a journalist. Um, She's written several books, but most of them have been like political related. So about like the history of the White House or contemporary vice presidents and first ladies. So uh, it's interesting to me that she's doing uh, an actress now, but I like her approach and her style. So I thought this one would be kind of cool. So Elizabeth Taylor was obviously a famous actress. She was one of the last major stars to kind of come out of the studio system. Um, She's known for her beauty and her presence on screen, uh, as well as her kind of compelling private life. She um, was married eight times to seven different men. Um, She became... uh, um, at the end, near the end of her life, she became deeply involved in the AIDS movement and raising money for AIDS uh, research and patient care. Just a really like an an icon. And so uh, in this book, she um, Brower uses her letters, diary entries, and off the record interview transcripts, as well as interviews with 250 friends and family to tell her full um, kind of story about her career and her private life. So I don't. I mean, I obviously know of Elizabeth Taylor, but I don't know a ton about her. Um, And so I'm really interested in this one just because I think she has a really fascinating life. And I think this uh, is a a person that I've enjoyed reading that I think um, will have an interesting or an effective approach to uh, telling this story. So Elizabeth Taylor, The Grit and Glamour of an Icon by Kate Anderson Brower is out December 6th. Yeah, I was going to ask why you chose this because I don't tend to think of you as like watching old movies and stuff. Is that wrong? No, I mean, my mom loves old movies, and so I did watch a lot of them when I was a kid. And I do still, like, I have really been into, like, old Hollywood fiction for a while. Like, not kind of something that I like to pick up, like, historical fiction from that era. So, but yeah, I used to watch a lot of old movies with my mom, so. Oh, did we, like, early in For Real talk about Karina Longworth's podcast? I think we did, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you must remember this. So good. I haven't yeah. listened to it in a while. I haven't either, but it's really good. And her book on Howard Hughes was great. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I was it, very much like the teenager watching TCM 
growing mm-hmm. up. And uh, Old Hollywood is fantastic. Elizabeth Taylor's a little later for me. Like, I know she started yeah. doing movies in, like, the 40s, but, like, her her whole heyday being, like, the 60s, late 50s. Yeah. I didn't like those movies as much because they were <laughs> – I was very conservative and they were mm-hmm. a little racy for me. Sure, but sure. so beautiful, such a, an emotionally turbulent life. Yeah. And – you know, obviously her whole deal with Richard Burton, even though, did they make, oh my gosh, I was about to say, did they make any great movies together? Completely forgetting about Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. Never mind. <laughs> Just ignore me. But yeah, no, that book sounds good. Okay. Uh, my next pick is Silent Spring Revolution, John F. Kennedy, Rachel Carson, Lyndon Johnson, Richard Nixon, and The Great Environmental Awakening by Douglas Brinkley. This is about the rise of environmental activism during the long 1960s, which goes from 1960 to 1973, which talks about the generation that, quote, saved the natural world under the leadership of John F. Kennedy, Lyndon Johnson, and Richard Nixon. And if you are saying, wait a minute, it's not saved, I understand. But (laughs) the point of the book is that things were going downhill very quickly (laughs) during this time. (laughs) So uh, there was uh, the Trinity explosion in the New Mexico desert, 1945, with, and then like, so dropping the atomic bomb on Japan, uh, or bombs on Japan. And so we had suddenly this, you know, incredibly destructive force, and then its after effects with nuclear radiation. Uh, There were also a lot of ecosystems contaminated by radiation. And then there, because of the 1950s, there was a post-war economic boom, right? Where it's like, oh, suburbia got big and Eisenhower and all this stuff. But because of this, America became the world's leading hyper-industrial and military giant. So as the book says, oceans began to die, wilderness vanished, uh, the insecticide DDT poisoned ecosystems, a lot of wildlife perished, and then there was chronic smog in cities. So some of it sounds really familiar um, in terms of, oh my gosh, this sounds so bleak and how can we get past it? And so what I like about this book is that it talks about the people who did something and who not only did something, but were able to stop the, uh, let's say, environmental terrors of the moment in this time period in the 1960s. So Rachel Carson, who wrote Silent Spring, which was talking about how terrible DDT was and got it banned. David Brower was director of the Sierra Club. Uh, Coretta Scott King was an anti-nuclear activist. And uh, there's just a, a lot. Cesar Chavez was a labor organizer. There are a lot of people profiled in this. And some of the legislation that passed was uh, the Wilderness Act of 1964, the Clean Air Act, the Endangered Species Act. The EPA came into existence, I believe, under Nixon, which is so weird. But basically, there were so many activists pushing for things, and we got all of this legislation passed. And a lot of these problems then turned into different problems that we are (laughs) currently dealing with. But those problems were addressed in some form. So I find it hopeful (laughs) and informative. So again, that is Silent Spring Revolution, John F. Kennedy, Rachel Carson, Linda Johnson, Richard Nixon, and The Great Environmental Awakening by Douglas Brinkley. That sounds, uh, that sounds very interesting. I, Something about the subtitle of just being a bunch of names of people, I was like, well, that that is like a fascinating subtitle, and I kind of love it, even though it's not like, it's just, it feels different, you know what I mean? He's a presidential historian, so I feel yeah. like... That's <laughs> he's, fair. He's got to put a lot of words in there. 
That's true. He's got to like stake it. Like this is what we're talking about here. Yeah. So my last pick is called Orchid Muse, A History of Obsession in 15 Flowers by Erica Hanekel, uh, which also comes out December 6th. And I picked this one because I saw it and I was like, Alice and I both love The Orchid Thief by Susan Orlean. Obviously, there's a book about orchids. We have to talk about it. So this book is, like I said, a history of people's obsession with orchids. And so Erica Hanekel is a historian and she is a horn orchid grower. And so she kind of pulls together a bunch of stories about people who throughout history have loved or been obsessed with orchids. And then she also has some tips about caring for orchids if you happen to have them. So people in the book include uh, Empress Eugenie and Queen Victoria, who both uh, loved uh, orchids, Uh, the guy who built the Brooklyn Bridge, John Roebling, Frida Kahlo, who um, uh, was drawn to a particular type of orchid and put that flower in um, one of her self-portraits, other people who have uh, painted orchids to try and help with conservation efforts. Um, And so this is a book about orchidomania, which is a great word. And so she kind of looks all over the world at the different um, places where orchids have kind of been Uh, obsessions with people. And so it says it has full color illustrations throughout, which I also think sounds really delightful. So yeah, another book about people who are obsessed with orchids. Different than The Orchid Thief, but I think could be an interesting companion read if that is a book you really enjoy. So Orchid Muse, A History of Obsession in 15 Flowers by Erica Hanekal. Oh yeah, that's a really good pick. I was, I'm in a group text lately, like a small one with a a friend who was watching The X-Files for the first time And then another friend who, like me, has a long history with the X-Files. So she is texting us her commentary as she watches it. And my other friend who is familiar with X-Files texted the group last Saturday and was like, I can't reply for a while because I'm at a silent orchid auction. (laughs) (laughs) What? That's amazing. I know. We were like, this is the best thing you could be attending right now. And then uh, she sent us a photo of her orchid that she bought after. But... Is she people who love orchids love them so much, and I yeah. find it just very endearing. Yes, yes. Okay. Um, my last pick is a very easy read. Let's say it is the Quentin Blake book by Jenny Uglow. This is Quentin Blake is the illustrator for a lot of Roald Dahl books, and I, I believe that is what he is definitely most associated with is the the Roald Dahl illustrations. He is also illustrated many other things. He is still alive and is now doing things like uh, large-scale works for hospitals, libraries, and public spaces. But in this, this goes from his illustrations from when he was 16 and published in Punch, which I can't believe Punch was still around, and up to uh, now. It also has his commentary along with author Jenny Uglow talking about um, his work over 70 years of his drawings and illustrations, including uh, recent unpublished work. And I just like, I think anything, right, that you take in in childhood and love, you're then going to have this sort of, you know, uncritical just appreciation for. And I loved Roald Dahl's books so much. And Quentin Blake's illustrations are such a huge part of that that I was just delighted that he has a, a book. It's all about him. So the, the Quentin Blake book by Jenny Uglo. Very exciting. That is a delightful pick to end on. So yeah, I loved Roald Dahl books when I was a kid. Also like found them very terrifying in some situations, um, but yeah. the illustrations are so great in making them both entertaining and also terrifying. Yep. <laughs> 
the witches is what I am talking about. The, the illustrations of the witches are so good. Oh, yeah. Well, they're, they're horrifying, but they're so good. Yeah. So with that, uh, there's a bunch of new books to kind of round out the year that doesn't even get close to all of them, but there's a few that you can check out. Uh, and with that, we will wrap up as we normally do by talking about the books we're reading right now at this very moment. I am nearly done with Year of the Tiger, An Activist's Life by Alice Wong. Uh, And this is a memoir in sort of essays and interviews and illustrations and collages and graphics by Alice Wong, who is a disability activist. She grew up in Indiana. She, when she was in uh, graduate school, moved out to California. Um, She has a form of muscular dystrophy. So she, um, over time, has had to have um, more and more accommodations and has had to be she's but she's a very strong leading voice in the disability justice movement um she is the editor of a book called disability visibility which is really great um and so this book is a memoir um she's got several like newly written essays talking about growing up her experiences as an activist um but then it also brings in like interviews and um, blog posts and podcast transcripts and stuff like that to sort of create this like collage almost of um her life and sort of her work and her experiences and i just it's really um it is fascinating it is eye-opening it is um it's really funny in parts it's very like infuriating in other parts and i just really like it i love the way that it is put together so uh it's it's really good year of the tiger an activist's life by alice wong oh i'm glad that that's good okay Yet yet another one to add to the list. I am reading The Ice Pick Surgeon, Murder, Fraud, Sabotage, Piracy, and Other Dastardly Deeds Perpetrated in the Name of Science by Sam Keen. I am slightly dismayed to learn that these were not all committed by one person. <laughs> Since, I know. Since it's called The Ice Pick Surgeon, I thought it was That's about true. one person. But it's 12 yeah. stories talking about um, – basically in the in the intro, which is pretty much what I've read so far, he is saying that everyone kind of, you know, lauds science as like just like, yay, science. And it science is just a basically a means of seeing – like figuring something out. And it can definitely be uh, extremely biased or it can be used for evil and what is the line, et cetera. So he's looking at these 12 people who have misused science. So um, mm-hmm. I'm interested in reading these stories, even though <laughs> I am I'm still a little sad. It's not just one person who did fraud, sabotage, and piracy and all this stuff. Yeah. So uh, that is The Ice Pick Surgeon by Sam Keen. And in conclusion, you can find us on social media. I am at It's Alice Time, and Kim is at Kim the Dork. Our amazing audio editing for this episode was done by Jen Zink. If you have a few minutes, we would love it if you take the time to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify so people find us more easily. You can then follow us there so you get new episodes the very minute that they come out. With that, I am Kim Ukra. And I'm Alice Burton. And we thank you for listening to this week's episode of the For Real Podcast.